Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to the first of our two Christmas shows. Our guest is the one and only Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, which the Nightlight audience um, loves his work and his appearances have been our highest rated shows. Um, Part two of his book is coming out in March, and you know, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that here in a uh, little bit. And um, you know, Gary and Barbara will be doing a seven-week series in the spring, so uh, and keep checking the uh, Nightlight uh, website for um, – this series is going to start um, for the last three years. Did the descendants of the Nephilim attempt to end the uh, two main God-centered holidays, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, with perpetuating the fear that you'll kill Grandma? You know, Christmas tree lighting ceremonies are being interrupt, interrupted by ceasefire demands, lawsuits. You know, happen all of a sudden when the county courthouse puts up the manger scene and you know, demands to remove the Ten Commandments. Um, but you know, are a lot of people making the connection between uh, the de-emphasis of morality and the increase of crime? Uh, so, should this Christmas season caused us to refocus on putting on uh, God's armor from uh, the book of 
Ephesians to stop the evil bloodlines who want to who want us to begin eating bugs for holiday meals. Uh, hi, Gary. How are you doing? Doing well, and thank you for inviting me back to the show. And so happy to be here. And yeah. want to wish everybody uh, a very merry Christmas and uh, the best of the holidays to all. For no matter what religious uh, perspective you have or non-religious, that it's a celebration that so many people can participate in. That um, it's truly, a, a, you know, an interesting and a really good time of year, and I hope it's preserved in in that sort of spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's basically tonight's show has uh, two questions or two themes. Um, yeah, have the jealous elites uh, misled us into worshiping like the wrong symbols and idols such as Santa and his helpers and Yule logs. Uh, And number two is like, how do we get back to the original meaning of Christmas? uh, It just seems like uh, with all the world, uh, turmoil going on uh, kind of have to wonder is the West becoming like the Babylon from Revelation 18 is it more centered around just Davos or are we dealing with soulless leaders of demonic bloodlines that's probably enough for uh, just to have you go on a two-hour rant? I can get a sandwich and <laughs> come back and let you know the show's about over. Yeah, yeah when's your book there's... coming out? <laughs> but, but it, yeah, that's kind of like where you know how, how have we gotten to this uh, point of uh, you know, like the elves and stuff like that? You know, you do uh, cover elves in uh, your book on giants. But, you know, or or have we been focusing too much on the wrong um, symbols? It's a really good question. So it's kind of of yes and no. Um, If you're looking at things from a Christian perspective, one would say, yes, people are using all of the wrong uh, symbols and things that are associated with with Christmas, but the time of year is important all around the world, and so you have a conflation of events. And I wouldn't want to uh, ignore other belief systems and not permit them to do celebrations that they want to do in that same time frame, I just think it should be identified as to where those traditions come and not conflated with Christmas. And I'd also say that, you know, Christmas for Christmas, uh, Christian perspective is to celebrate the birth of the Messiah of the Redeemer. And so the thing to remember on that is that 
we don't have a birth date for Jesus in the Bible. And that as a Christian, you ought to celebrate his birth and his resurrection, you know, every day of the year. But it doesn't make sense that the date was chosen as December 25. Uh, but I don't tell Christians not to celebrate Christmas on December 25. Just if you're a Christian, make sure you're, you're, you understand what that day is supposed to mean to you and what it means elsewhere. And, and, and again, try not to conflate them unless, again, that's what you want to do. But uh, originally, though, Jesus wouldn't have been born in, in December. It's just not congruent with the details. So the details uh, of the birth is that there's a census that's going on, and, and Joseph and Mary are on their way um, to Bethlehem um, to be registered for the census, and because there's a census, they can't get a place in a hotel. So the only place that's available is a stable. And uh-huh. what's really odd about that is if it was in December, there'd be no stable that would be available because it's the rainy season then. And that when the angels come in the Christmas story in the Bible is that they're talking to the shepherds in the field. So it's not raining. It's not the rainy season. Otherwise, they'd be in the stables. So it is more likely that uh, the birth date of Jesus would be somewhere between mid to late September and early October as it would line up with other biblical details. It was chosen as the 25th in the time of the Romanization of the Jerusalem church of the original Jerusalem church, when Constantine takes Christianity to a state level religion. And he's going to uh, mix in a number of other religious symbols and dates and things to unite the empire. He's going to do what was done in Persia with Zoroastrianism. And so it's interesting that the date that is picked as December 25 is the birth date of of Mithra, the god of Mithraism, which was a very, very popular religion in, in, in the Roman Empire at that time and within Roman, within the army in particular, and it's a branch religion of Zoroastrianism. And so that's the date that was picked. But it was, as I say, what Constantine was trying to do is he was trying to unite the empire and sort of give the religious nature and the celebrations um, a common sort of ground that all belief systems could participate in. And because there wasn't a known date, that seemed to work sort of perfectly. So it worked good. Christians get a date to celebrate the birth of Christ. And the polytheist religions get a uh, date for Mithra, which would have a cognate god in all the other pantheons that would be under the Roman Empire as well. That's just the start of the importance of this season to polytheist religions. Uh, And we really don't have much. We don't really have anything in December from a Christian perspective Mm -hmm. uh, for a celebration then. 
uh, other, you know, even from an old sort of Judaic calendar, it doesn't really sort of hit a new year. That's that's a solar polytheistic uh, calendar and, and the way things are done through the equinoxes and solstices. And so uh, the only sort of monotheist uh, Judaic Christian uh, type of celebration would be Hanukkah, but that isn't really part of the Feast of the Lord. That's a, that's the a marking of an event that's very, very important to the Jewish people. Um, but again, separate from December 25 that was chosen for Christ's birth and or separate from everything else that's wrapped into the season of Christmas and all the imagery that goes in it. I mean, it has become, it has a life of its own. And uh, But to say that it gets away from... Uh, <clears throat> The original meaning of Christmas isn't really quite right. It's just coincidental that uh, that Christians, are, you know, sort of an aberration of history that we would celebrate Christ's birth at the same time. All of these other polytheist important religious days are marked in a season of the that begins before Christmas and ends in New Year's uh, and and maybe even a little bit afterwards so all of those things we can get in and talk to and see how that has been adopted into the cosmology not the cosmology but the sort of the the merging of all of these different beliefs from different cultures into this one celebration okay when you know, you know we're uh, talking about one one day, you know, December twenty fifth, and it was originally set aside for the you know, you're saying the uh, polytheistic um, faith at the time, and it's now become. Over time, it's become more um, associated with a monotheistic uh, faith. So you kind of have a little bit of this uh, duality on one uh, day. It's connected to, you know, you know, Mithra. It's connected to the cognate version in the. In the in in India uh, with Mitra, uh, it's connected to Sol uh, Invictus. Or I mean, not Sol Invictus. Uh, yeah, Sol Invictus of the unconquered sun god. It's part of that whole sort of mythos uh, that a day is selected that works for Christians, and it also worked for other religions that the Romans ruled over. And then everything else has been sort of added to that as we go. And again, I think it's fine for if, if you're, uh, you know, if you're part of Zoroastrianism or Gnosticism and you're celebrating those dates, that's fine. Um, probably we shouldn't call it Christmas, <laughs> you know, the Christ Mass. But um, hey, it's just you know, it's part of the whole sort of culture of Christmas now. But we should we should be able to understand the imagery so at least we know why we're doing the things that we're doing. Yeah, that's where I, I was kind of going with this, where you know, when you look at uh, the season, you know, being bombarded with, uh, you know, 
ads, uh, but you know, what do they really have anything to do with like the original um, gifts presented at the uh, you know manger by the magi? You know, you get um, in, in your uh, Genesis six conspiracy, you know, you have all these uh, different uh, light bearing um, gods. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, fairies and, and and Satan and you know, like the Illuminati and, and you know, all this stuff just becomes so confusing. It goes. Back to you have the two trees in the Garden of Eden, and then you you get eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just uh, trying to make all these um, uh, sense out of all these dualities is uh, can be uh, bewildering. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating to look at um, you know the cultural um, evolution or de-evolution of those ideas. Um, reading your book brings out ideas uh, like that. Uh, being more uh, like, how do we pick out? Uh, these like angels that might be light bearing, you know, know, like Satan's an angel too, but you know, does that just go back to, um, you will know them by their fruits. Um, you know, I'm just kind of giving, giving you credit for making me think. And I, I just try, uh, trying to get, uh, you know, the listeners to perceive the, yeah. uh, what's going on ba- based on things that you bring up in, in your book. I, I, I think yeah. you do a fa- fantastic job of it, illuminating a lot of those topics. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that the, you know, the first book, does uh, doesn't matter what walk of life from you come from it, it allows you to sort of decode things uh, no. and you understand the language of the the imagery to a certain degree so you know you take uh you know the gift give, giving uh and there's whole there's layers and layers and layers and layers in there uh and so you have a gift giving as you were talking about with a magi um to uh you know the family of Jesus to Joseph and and Mary and these are kings as they're described to us and magi so it's they're kind of like priest kings and uh they're recognizing a significant event and mm-hmm. so just and they would do things in a manner to honor the gods that they were worshiping because they were polytheists as as, as magi um that's what they would do and so they gave those gifts in honor because they just that's they sort of understood they they ought to do to mark this sort of event 
And so that's what is also done in polytheist religions. So some of that gift-giving is uh, sort of carried over into the Christmas understanding. And, you know, giving gifts can be, you know, a terrific thing. And it's, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive. Like everybody says, the old adage is it's the thought. And it's to, you know, celebrate with, with family uh, as opposed to the size and, and the over sort of commerciality that uh, tends to infect us today. That's always how much more you're going to spend. And then there's another part of the gifts that gets overlaid into it in, you know, starting in about 280 AD to, with the birth of a person called St. Nicholas. And he's a, a Greek saint as he gets saint, sainted after he dies, of course. And, you know, he also he went through some rough times. He was exiled and imprisoned by Diocletian, the uh, Roman emperor, and he died. And Nicholas died in 343 A.D. And so, partially where Santa Claus comes from would be Saint Nick, but it's more of how do we mix this in so it fits onto an overlay of some other myths and. Uh, rituals and so they take saint as in santa and klaus from nick uh for santa claus is sort of the standard sort of story and why he's kind of connected in there is because he uh you know he gave gifts away um and he's also known for giving uh to some uh, nobility uh, uh females he gave three three bags of gold to so um that's where the tradition from a christian perspective would come from but it's not a biblical tradition to do this but there's nothing wrong with giving gifts as long as you're not doing it from a christian perspective of honoring other gods now as you get into the other belief systems uh they are honoring gods with those kinds of gifts and as you get that sort of transitioned into uh santa claus um you have a changing uh, not just a change i mean you're adding a whole new mythos into there and so originally you know santa claus was uh a small elf-like figure in, in america uh in the 1860s and and there's an older history that we'll we can get to on this but it's the santa claus idea that where he's delivering gifts to the children just as saint nicholas um the greek saint gave also gifts and cookies and fruits and nuts and things to the poor children um this is sort of how you you create a, a converged sort of mythos and uh you know santa claus is also understood in some cultures as uh as particularly in greek as father christmas um you know ius valisio and it means it was represented in old greek history as an old man and a white beard and a red cape um and it was celebrated on january 1st back in the the greek tradition and in the new year so you see a relationship there you have a german sort of a character that is uh chris kringle or german chris kindle and it's a christ child is is the meaning of that and it's built on a polytheist uh 
tradition uh, of Krishna. So out of the Vedic um, belief system, and of course that was part of a lot of the Celtic belief systems as well, because they're, again, they're this, the same pantheon, just different names and some cultural vernacular sort of uh, rituals, but it's the same worldwide polytheist religion. And it was understood as Chris Kringle as an avatar, uh, as an avatar of Vishnu, so uh, with Krishna. So uh, one being the avatara and one being the avatar. Uh, avatara would be uh, Krishna in this understanding. And almost like a, a son of a god. So again, you can see the relationships in that as it could easily sort of be uh, merged in with the Son of God or the Word of God, uh, you know, of the Trinity in the Bible, and that the gifts by the Magi were given to um, uh, to Joseph and Mary and, and, and in front of the baby Jesus. And you have out of that mention of what I said in the 1860s where Santa Claus in America was known more as a small elf. Now you have another tradition that comes out of Egypt that is going to start bringing in more elves. And this is the, uh, uh, the Krampus uh, oh, okay. version of, uh, of, of Santa Claus. And Krampus is more of a dark Santa Claus than some of the other sort of imageries and he has dark elves as well. And uh, this is sort of sort of dates back to the prose Edda of, out of North mythology. And, you know, these dark elves were sub subterranean dwellers and they were like dwarfs and they made things for the gods just as the dwarves, um, part of the elementals that I talk about in the, in the book and the spurious offspring of the gods were all created to do specific things for the gods. And with the dwarves, they made the weapons for the gods and the demigods and the elves did all sorts of other things with technology uh, and things like that. And they were known as the elven people. And then you have also white elves that can be associated with Christmas as well. They tend to be larger elves and they're pale white and they're likely, you know, sort of a, uh, an understanding that you would place them with the Shea people or the Shade or the Tuatha Dud and Nan, uh, the Sea. There's several different pronunciations for the same sort of people that were white skinned and blonde haired and blue eyed and red haired and nasal eyed just like the Nephilim were, and uh, they're portrayed in, in Lord, of the, Lord of the Rings with Tolkien as these noble white elves, right? The noble white mm -hmm. Celts are just not depicted as their full size, but you see all these other elves that are sort of related with that. So when you get into the Krampus tradition of this, um, he is a, it is a pre-Christian in origin, and he's kind of... Uh, an anthropomorphic character, if I can put it that way. In other words, he has human traits um, and it's overlaid into non-human entities or godlike entities, um, both in the emotions and the natural forces that he controls. Remember, he flies a sleigh that is pulled by reindeer. Um, 
and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that later in the show or as I go on with here. Mm-hmm. So as we look at how what he is based on, um, he's associated as a as a holly king or a winter king in, in, in Celtic and Norse mythology. And just as there was an oak king and a holly king in the Druidic tradition where the oak is the king of the summer and holly is the king of the winter and they would fight mm-hmm. and then one would win each time of the year so that summer could come or winter could come, right? And it's part of the whole understanding. And is son of the of a horned god or Odin in Norse uh, mythology, or if you get into Celtic mythology, it would be um, Hearn or Cernunos or Cern out of the Etruscan pantheon or Azazel, um, you know, as you take that back to a fallen angel or a pan god in that sort of tradition. And so in the Germanic tradition, um, this... uh, Father God, just as we had this Father Christmas, Father being, as Father is referred to in the Bible as, as, as the God Most High, would be the highest God of the pantheon um, in, in the polytheist tradition. And you have this, this, this Germanic tradition uh, being equated into a demigod format or a son of a god with Krampus. And so on the dark side, he would be created with, um, the, uh, with, with the devil from a Christian perspective, but that would be Satan at the top of the pantheon of, of fallen angels uh, mm-hmm. in the Bible or Lucifer, uh, which would be understood from polytheist traditions as a shining God of light and God of knowledge. So we have these, these, as I say, these dualist sort of things that are going on with uh, this, this conflation. And so Krampus is one of these uh, gods who has a cart that uh, he uses and a bag. And um, on December 5, on the eve, and uh, also understood that uh, the day of St. Nicholas was December 6, that he gave gifts to children. So you see how that now is worked over with this Krampus tradition, where on the 5th, which is the eve of the 6th of December, Krampus, which was, they call it Krampus Eve, uh, would go looking for children and leaving uh, coal. And it's a night of ghosts and demons like Halloween. It's one of the more important days where the spirits come from the other world. And uh, Krampen actually means uh, a claw in German. Uh, And Krampen was the son of a Norse god of the underworld in that tradition. So you can see how that's starting to come together. And as the god of the underworld, he would be the god of hell, as as Christians would understand that, and that Satan is one of his names in the Bible is Hail L H E Y E L, um, and that's in Isaiah 14 where it says in the King James version, Lucifer, son of the morning. That's 
an Italian word inserted into the English language for a Hebrew word, which is Halal. And typically, angels' names would end in an E-L, just like Michael or Gabriel or Zazel or okay. Raphael, Uriel. And this is Halal, and that's where he becomes in, understood as, I mean, you can, you'll can you take that name back, and it's going to mean light and proud and boaster and stuff like that. But it's also the root word for hell in the etymology, and he is the god of hell, with E-L being the angel or the god part at the end. And so now you have that sort of direct connection as you have Krampen on, on, on the uh, German and Norse uh, mythology. You see the parallel connections to what's being talked about in the Bible. And in about the rule of Henry VIII, uh, Christmas, uh, uh not Christmas, but the day of St. Nicholas celebration was moved to be on the same day as December 25. So now everything from a Christian perspective, from an English king and country is, is starting to move things together in that sort of manner as well. Now what, what Krampus did, which is in the mythology, which is, is, is very, very dark is, is he would, uh, steal children and put the children in a bag and put them in the cart and to take them to hell to do sacrifices and all sorts of horrible things to the kids. And so this is where the term naughty or nice comes from. And he's looking for the naughty uh, ones to take away in bags and into his cart. And with this tradition of Krampus, you have these dark elves that are associated with them. And these are the ones that are going out for him and collecting the children uh, to take them into subterranean locations or, or into, into hell. And so you get some really awful sort of depictions of what some of these elves and dwarves would look like. So they weren't the ones making the toys, but in polytheism, you have a macro dualism and a, what I like to call a micro dualism and forgive my superficial analogy, but within the religion, you have like black magic and white magic. You have good giants and bad giants. You have good witches and evil witches and on and on and on with that sort of dualism and white hats and black hats as they're known in the occult today. And, they have a same agenda and worship the same gods, but they do it in a different way. Uh, so as the mythos goes, the white hats and the good ones are, are more favorable to humankind and the other ones are not so favorable. So this is starting to talk about a separation of the bloodlines, uh, the spurious offspring of the, of the gods, uh, the ancient heroes, Nephilim uh, in the Greek, in Hebrew tradition out of the Bible, uh, respect, uh, respectively, in the Anunnaki, earthly Anunnaki, and watchers, earthly watchers that are the offspring of the heavenly ones in Sumeria. And you have this tradition of these giants all around the world that are the offspring, just as Krampus is an offspring of a specific Norse god in that, in that German tradition. And so... 
the light side of that tradition has this Santa Claus that is giving gifts and to everybody around the world. So you see that sort of dualism, how it's understood in, in the occult. And what's interesting about the, the reindeer is it's almost like a, an imagery of a watcher with these horns. And in Greek mythology, you have uh, Apollo and Zeus and other gods and goddesses who had their thrones, their chariots pulled that could fly with these great white horses and or unicorns um, and or as they're also unicorns are also understood not only as this large horse that the Nephilim would ride on into battle but they're also known as a heavenly being as well so two different groups and one and this would be a watcher being and biblically you have the chariot being pulled by a god by cherubim and just as Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10, and in the Psalms, it talks about the cherubim also pulling the chariot of God that's in the vision that uh, Ezekiel received. So you see this God form and this demigod also asked to Santa Claus that is being talked about that rolls through, again, different different cultures, different religions around the world. So you can kind of see how you can start to roll in this tradition and start conflating it into one. Uh, mm-hmm. But again, you should understand what those traditions are so you can make your own decisions on that. That's, um, I think you did a great job of you know, keeping everything separate and showing how they become conflated. Uh, I really like that. Yeah, you know, there's just a lot of things. Um, you know, just dealing with <laughs> what's what's in your book and uh, making it into a uh, hollow holiday type show is um, very thought provoking and. It was, uh, yeah. Just, I think the last time you you were, I guess, with Barbara, you know, kind of kicking kick around some ideas, and yeah, you know, I, I didn't realize uh, tonight was the uh, yeah the the Krampus uh, 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 night. Yeah, that was just uh, synchronicity or. Um, um, you know, maybe could you know just say, oh, I planned it that way to make it, uh, you know, oh, f- fit. But uh, it was, you know, to be honest, it, it was just a, uh, 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 just nice timing to to get into things like that. But you know, in as we talk about things like this, you know, on the airwaves, you know, you get that um, passage um, in Ephesians 2 about the principalities of the air 
and you know, I I'm I'm, gl- I'm always glad to be able to do a show, but you know, so, sometimes um, oh, um, you know, there have been examples where um, things have been blurted out because uh, maybe a guest actually had a little bit more uh, of sips of wine before, um, you know, to relax. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not responsible for that, but uh, um, I think Barbara and I, you know, try to be a little bit more uh, discerning, but you know, sometimes you know, there comes a time when you have to talk about some of the, um, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, harder aspects of what's going on in the world. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you have to deal with that too. It, you know, it, it, it's a little. It does become a little unsettling for at least me as a host. That you know, makes me a little uncomfortable, kind of talking about some of this. But you know, most of the rest of the show is okay. It, you know, with the job like I have, and you know what you do, appearing on so many shows. Um, is trying to present the truth from our perspective it, it does that fit in with the season or should um do we need to uh, re refine what we're uh talking about uh when we get on the air so that we aren't um misleading the listeners um i think that's the hardest part of what i'm doing uh, um uh, can we be forgiven for shows that uh go really badly yeah i'm not quite sure i, I understand but yeah i think I think uh well yeah, we need, I, I, I think I, we need to take a step back and and understand that the information flow in this world um, over most of our history has been filtered, and we're only told what they want us to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's changing a little bit now because we have access to so much information and there's more ed- more education going on uh, and that people are starting to peel back that onion. I would expect that we'll see increasing censorship to prevent that from happening um, because too much information uh, starts to reveal things that those who run this world, the visible ones with the authority of the invisible ones, which you were referencing a few minutes ago, um, want to control what we do and what we understand. And so, you know, if you're wanting to uh, 
create a universal religion that will come along with the globalist ideology, then you have to be able to conflate these things to to bring a lot of Christians into some of these polytheist traditions. And again, I'm not talking against the polytheist traditions. It's just that uh, we're not taught in the West that these are polytheist traditions. And that's, you know, the, one needs to know where, where some of that imagery and, and things come from. Um, because they're manipulating us. Um, uh, so we can have these celebrations and we just need to decide and learn and be curious uh, to, to, to learn about this. And for people in the media, whether it's yourself or myself or other media, yeah, they ought to be more honest about where some of this stuff comes from or ought to be more curious to get that information to sort of talk about it in a way that makes sense for people because all you do is you're creating wedges, like you're creating forces against celebrating Christmas and forces who say, no, let's take Christmas back and keep it and everything and be the way that we that we want it to be. But what is it supposed to be? And if you don't know where the traditions come from, you don't know what it's supposed to be. But it's kind of a sign of the times as well is that anything that's sort of associated with Christian for celebration is to be censored and not done, but all other festivals are permitted as long as it's not a Christian one. Um, and and I would pull into that sense some Judaic uh, celebrations as well because of the Judaic Christian tradition that seems to have this uh, happening to them more than way more than other than, than other religions and cultures. I know people might take an issue with me, but uh, with me on that, but we're certainly seeing that more and more and more. And that we need to understand that there's very little in the Christmas season for Christians. But again, we ought to celebrate the Messiah from a Christian perspective and, and, and the birth. And, you know, people are familiar with the 12 days of Christmas. Nobody really knows what the 12 days of Christmas is or where it came from. You even have this song that's played over and over and over. And uh, so starting, you know, on, on December uh, um, 17th to the 23rd was Odin's Wild Hunt, which is part of the 12 days. But uh, that started off this whole Christmas season. So you had a similar hunt that was done in the Druidic tradition because it's just a different celtic tradition in a different culture and starting on december 21 which is the solstice day right you start the 12 days of gift giving which goes through the new year in a couple days after christmas so that's where the 12 days of christmas comes from it's part of that season of the solstice and uh, the season of hern the season of all of the sort of chief horn um and as I say, it goes right through to that celebration of, of January 1st, and then the gift giving, you know, continues for, you know, a couple more days. So when you look at that term, the holiday season, you know, where does that come from? And there's layers to that. So we can look at it from two different views. But again, once we understand the, the conflation, then... Again, it helps us to decide what we want to do. So, you know, typically holiday is 
comes from you know old English as you know Helig Dag, and it means holy day. So from a Christian perspective, there would be a holy day for Christ's birth. But from a polytheist tradition, and the Celtic tradition in this case, um, it would be the holy day of Mithra that would be being celebrated. And there's also an allegory to holy day, which is it's the holly day, H-O-L-L-Y day. Uh, as some traditions like to refer that to. And, of course, holly is associated with Christmas. Mm-hmm. And it has Celtic traditions that go with it because it's mainly a, a Celtic tradition. Um, and so, you know, holly uh, is is thought to be, from a Christian perspective, adopted in. So, again, one can see how these things can be conflated is, you know, it has red berries and it has green leaves and thorny leaves, right? And it's green in the winter. And so typically the berries are, you know, they look like drops of blood, as some people like to describe them, and they're considered the blood of Christ. And uh, the thorny leaves are considered what, you know, to be a relationship to the crown of Christ or the crown of thorns. Oh, okay, I see that. But from a occult tradition, it would be more of a laurel tree crown or the laurel boughs, just as the Greek gods wore these laurel crowns and Olympic heroes were awarded for winning the Olympic Games, this laurel crown. It's kind of that symbology of what frames um, the uh, United Nations uh, emblem. Um, and it is, you know, an ancient Greek tradition of gods and and demigods. And that holly with the Celts is associated with the winter solstice in December 21. And it's uh, believed to, in that tradition, to help repel lightning as well. So they would have other purposes for it. But Typically, it was used to, uh, you know, as a, almost as a talisman to put over doorways and things like that to ward off evil spirits. And again, we talked about the Holly King and the Oak King that was summer and, and winter. Uh, oak is the most important tree in, in, the, in the Celtic tradition. Uh, so again, everything that's sort of in, in the Christmas tradition can have two different meanings and one has to decide for themselves is that something that I want to participate in or not and the same thing might go for mistletoe which is you know associated with the druids and the norse as well surprise surprise with the consistency this is a, a very much a northern dominated tradition as we would understand the christmas season and it was thought to possess mystical power and to provide good luck. And uh, in the Norse myth, it was actually, you know, represented love and friendship. That comes out of the death of uh, Baldur uh, in ancient Norse writings. And, you know, we see it show up as, you know, in uh, a Christmas carol uh, in the 1800s, but it actually shows up in literature um, in the 1700s in, in a musical comedy called Two to One in England. And it was hung as a, as a 
Christmas bow and as a kissing bow, which is why you have that kissing tradition. And that sort of comes out of the time of the Christmas carol as well. But the tradition actually is older than that. And you can take that back to the 1500s and other researchers will take that back even further into history. And, uh, you know, one thing about the mistletoe, which is interesting, it, it stays green and it, and it represents sort of immortality, which uh, is a very important um, uh, tradition in the occult, along with uh, uh, reincarnation. Uh, they have different trees that they would use for representations of that. And so, again, we have uh, the mistletoe, which is has an interesting tradition that can be used for, you know, good things and romance and stuff like that, but it also has uh, has an, uh, another side of it. And just before I let you back in, uh, on the Hollywood aspect of it, we also need to understand that Hollywood is the wood that was used for, in the Celtic tradition, was used for magic wand. Okay, uh, uh, that's that, that, that's a perfect setup for next uh, Wednesday night show. Um, okay, so, so we're t- okay. Uh, that was um, we were just you're just uh, giving us insights into all the s- symbolism of the um, oak trees, the holly tree. Uh, the the uh, wands were made from uh, uh, what kind of wood? Hollywood, oh, and, okay, uh, like where the movies are made. Okay, I'm sorry. It, uh, okay, what is like the symbolism of the gifts that the um, magi are bringing? Is, uh, is um, the frankincense is kind of like a uh, or a uh, plant gift as well. Is that right? Yeah. My understanding would be um, very similar to incense, just a okay. more expensive sort and more rare version. Okay. So um, that's just fa- fascinating about all, all the, all the different uh, tree uh, trees, and shrubbery that um and you, you, you know, you've been uh discussing uh, um with all these different um cultural backgrounds you know, nordic traditions or you know Ger- uh, germanic um you know we uh Talk. You know, we, we've spoken a lot about um, the conflation um, that has occurred over you know, a couple, couple thousand years, and uh, one of the topics that you. Um, you present a really in, uh, interesting story about is 
Psalm 82 with, with the counterfeit uh, counsel in in um, my uh, version um, the of, counsel of gods. Yeah, the uh, line like five uh, discusses the um, undermining the very basis of earthly society. Do we see uh, some? Yeah, you know, the counterfeit doubles. Uh, you know, new. Those types of um, themes emanating from this behind-the-scenes look at uh, heaven in Psalm 82 that, that, you know, permeates uh that would eventually permeate some of these um uh, uh, holidays and don't don't have to be uh uh necessarily christmas but do, do we see some of these um dualities coming out of these councils in, in heaven that are documented in the Old Testament. So is, is the question is, do we see in the holidays some of the uh, things written in the Bible that would talk about the dualities that yeah, we yeah, see? Yeah, yeah. or... It, you know, like the line undermining the very basis of earthly society, or uh, is a line like that, un, like undermining uh, part of the reason for creating the duality, um, various types of uh, of light, but not all all of them. Are uh, good char- uh, some of the characters are malevolent. So you know, I was just wondering if. Yeah, I think I think we get that, and you know, certainly in in Psalms eighty two, this is talking about the invisible ones that mm-hmm. work with the visible ones to rule the earth, and Satan is the prince of this world, and that. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, not only Satan, but others masquerade themselves as angels of light. And so you have a duality, you know, within that of white hats and black hats within polytheism mm-hmm. as, as, as well. And that um, the, you know, Psalms 82 on the Council of the Gods um, you know, when I say they rule over the world, I mean they're ruling over the original 70 nations, um, as Deuteronomy 32 talks about, and that's both before and after the flood. And so counted by the 70 uh, patriarchs in Genesis 10 and First Chronicles and uh, numbered by the 70 sons of Adam, which we don't get listed in the Bible, just in Deuteronomy 32, that they would have ruled over before the flood. 
And so you have this sort of extension uh, around the world of these 70 nations. And so you just have sort of that hierarchy sort of back up into the 70 original nations and then the spurious ones that are created as the demigods to rule over those nations that have the authority to uh, rule as gods um, over, over, over humankind. And so, you know, uh, not everybody who's, who's in polytheism is, you know, this evil sort of person. They, you know, just, they're worshiping their pantheon of gods, but within the belief system, there's that good and evil that's always at, um, uh, at odds with each other within that belief system, just as the larger macro would have uh, Satan or Lucifer or Hallel being classified or the great architect of the universe as Zoroastrianism or Mithraism would uh, also call uh, their their main god. It would be the equal of God and that so, you know, again, you get that dualism at, at, at the macro level. So, yeah, I think uh, in most of the uh, holidays, you're going to see that dualism. You have the good side and you have the bad side of that holiday. And then as you wrap the Christian celebrations into those, you get the same type of thing sort of happening with that. And so Easter would be... Um, you know, another holiday that's wrapped into those spring May festivals and things um, of polytheism with Easter uh, showing up in the King James Version Bible in Acts 12.4, and the word is Pasha, which is Passover in Greek, and it should not have been translated at Easter, but Easter is a transliteration of Astaroth, Astar, Ishtar, uh, all of the Queen of Heavens that are talked about and so the Easter egg is, you know, is representing fertility and the fertility goddess, um, you know, Ishtar or Ashtaroth, whichever version you want to use for a transliteration of there. And, uh, you know, the rabbit has nothing to do with Passover <laughs> and, the, and the crucifixion of, of, of Jesus. So you, you have that sort of being conflated with imagery as well. But again, if you're if you're looking to globalize things, you want to conflate a lot of these celebrations of the different religions so that they start celebrating more and more, even though you know you might celebrate them differently if you if you knew the differences, um, they would still be celebrated at a at a similar sort of time. And in a lot of these traditions, and, and you were mentioning that there are trees that are involved, or shrubs, or plants, and things like that. Mm-hmm. In ancient celebrations, and biblically we get this as well, that they're called groves, uh, the main celebrations were you know, in sacred groves, or sacred woods, in certain places like that. So now you roll that forward to the Christmas tree. And you have a Christmas tree um, that can be used for two purposes in terms of its understanding and and its imagery. So you can have this beautiful tree, you can put this beautiful angel or whatever you want at the top, you can decorate it with Christian imagery or lights or whatever else you want to do, or bulbs that would be representing 
for the fertility goddess for for the queen of heaven and you have this evergreen tree uh which would be uh a northern representative of the cedar of lebanon which is the um which is understood in polytheism as the thelemic tree and it uh, has a lot of meanings in the different levels of polytheism and one of them will give you the hierarchy of secret societies and how that all works and the bloodlines and how that intersects how the roots go into where their gods are into Hades and Sheol other world and when uh, there's a hundred different names for the same locations uh, where they receive their their power from because the bloodlines rule this world with the authority of a specific godfather. Uh, and so when King Charles III swore an oath to God, he was swearing it not necessarily to the God of the Bible, but to uh, one of his, uh, another form of a uh, <clears throat> thalamic tree. There's two forms, the genealogical tree, which will, again has the roots that go down into heaven and their connections back to specific gods or fallen angels, and then the Nephilim or the Raphaim as the visible patriarch for that for that bloodline. And so there's one god that he's swearing this oath for that he receives the divine right to rule from, from Mount Hermon or the Baalim, as we understand that coming out of the, uh, the Bible, where the council of the gods are located. And you have uh, this this evergreen tree, the cedar of Lebanon, which is one of the descriptions to describe in Amos 2, the giants, uh, at least a, a, a hybrid form, the, the, the Amorites. Uh, and the behemoth. And, yeah, and also the oak tree is for their strength. And again, you get these similarities and discussions. It's talking uh, with referencing what's going outside of uh, the biblical world. And this tree represents immortality because it never sheds its leaves. So it's very, very important. Just as the ash, oak, or elm tree, and typically the elm tree would be the ideal genealogical tree and a, and a very important tree in the occult, represents as it loses its leaves as a you know broadleaf tree, um, it would represent reincarnation in the in the genealogical thalamic trees, but in the Christmas tree, it's a representation of the cedar of Lebanon and part of the groves uh, there. And then, as you would take that around the world, as close as you could get to those trees to continue with those kinds of traditions. And of course, Mount Hermon, as I said, is the location of the Council of the Gods. So it's a representation of the power coming from, you know, from that mountain and through the earth and into those, those two kinds of trees. And then you have not necessarily as a star or an angel at the top of that tree, as in A, but the angel or the star, which would be Satan, Lucifer, Hell, El, who um every, all polytheist regions would have a cognate form or vernacular name for that same god and so this is what you're putting in the tree so if you're starting to decorate that tree in a way that is 
not reflecting Christian imagery, you're starting to do a ritual and an idol and things as a non-Christian that you may want to think twice about what you're doing with that tree. Uh, so again, it can be used in two different ways. Because, I mean, why wouldn't you put a beautiful Christmas tree in a sense that you're not associating anything that's evil or not part of your religion and then decorate it up as part of the festivities. I mean, it's a terrific thing that you can do. And then put gifts under it and make it a great celebration. But go, I go back to making sure you understand why you're doing what you're doing and then make your decisions. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, we've been... Uh, talking for uh, 70 minutes. Uh, you know, I, I think you're you know, uh, probably, you know, uh, you know, without a doubt, the most informative uh, guest we uh, usually uh, have on Nightlight um, is. Uh, I would assume part two is uh, uh, coming out soon. Can you give us a little bit more background on is it a lot of the same material that is in um, the Genesis 6 conspiracy? Are you you, – Going down other rabbit holes in in the new book, um, can you, what are whistles for um, your new publication? Yeah, so the new book is called "The Genesis Six Conspiracy Part Two: How Understanding Prehistory in Giants Helps to Define End Time Prophecy," uh, versus the subtitle to the first book, Genesis Six Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind. Uh, This is a book I said I would never write. Uh, I stopped a book that I was 300 pages into, and I thought, you know, after doing an 800-page book, um, (laughs) you know, what's more to be told, right? Uh, You'd just be kind of redundant. So the inspiration for the book came from the listeners and the correspondence I get from them or the questions I get asked on shows. And what became very uh, apparent to me is, is people in a general sense wanted to know more about all the giants that are talked about in the Bible, not just sort of generically Nephilim, but, you know, we want to know all of it because there has to be more to it than just giants uh, in terms of just the name Nephilim. And Christians wanted to know that as well, but the Christians wanted to know even more. There isn't a book that is out there that goes deep into the Old Testament in terms of all the different names of the giant tribes, right. all the different hybrid giants and what's the difference between an Amorite and a Anakite Um, and there aren't many books out there that touch on the angelic hierarchy both loyal and fallen and we're talking and referencing a little bit with Psalms 82 and um, Deuteronomy 32 so I get into all of that and then I use 
as I'm particularly talking about the the rebellious side, I will give information out of what I think is the closest sort of writings to the Bible in terms of a polytheist ancient script, which would be the Ugaritic text, and show you how it's telling the same thing only through a polytheist lens versus a monotheist lens. And so as I'm going through um, that part of it, I'm building towards two things. One is, is all of the giant wars that were fought in the Old Testament. And most people don't know about them. They might be familiar with maybe Goliath as a giant. Right. Or they might mm-hmm. be familiar with uh, these, what is known as the War of Giants in Genesis 14. But they don't know of all of the battles that are actually giant wars. And I go through uh, all of the major wars and campaigns, so whether or not it's in the time of the Exodus, um, you, you know, Rephidim, with the Amalekites, Atherim, with the uh, Canaanites, uh, and the Eastern Campaign, the Central, the Northern, all the different campaigns, and then all the wars and identify the, how we know they're giants that they're fighting in each of those campaigns, the, all the wars of the judges identifying those giants, all the way through to King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, is how long those wars went on. And Along that way, I am highlighting important information and context and words to help understand the end-time prophetic uh, context of it, because end-time prophecy has a lot of allegory that's all defined in this kind of prehistory. So I'll use that to lay down a chronology for, for the end time and in a way that doesn't have conflicts. And, you know, if you're dealing with end time prophecy, one of the problems with most of the approaches, or I think all of them that I've come across, is that they leave out inconvenient passages. They have conflicts that they don't deal with. They have to reinvent what things say. Uh, all sorts of different red flags that should show up, and it should not happen that way. Just It, it has to work perfectly, and it does. And I show you how you can do that and provide uh, a lot of uh, chronology for the end time while doing that. So this book is as unique as the first book, but unique in different ways. And there is a little bit of overlap, but it's essentially all new information. So if you haven't heard of uh, plant tribes like the Perizim, or the uh, Kenazim, or the Kadmonim, or the Makathim, and names like that, or the Jebelim. Um, you're going to love this book. If you want to know more about giants, if you want to know more about gods and fallen angels and the relationship and how the hierarchy works in this world, and you want to know how that relates to the end time and how that relates to the bloodlines, this is a this is a book that is uh, can be read independently, but will want to will lead you to want to maybe read the first book, and vice versa once you hear about the second book. You preface uh, what you were going to say about uh, part two with you know it's like I don't know why I want to get into this like you know what. What's more to be told? What, you know, just with your appearances 
on Nightlight, so, so many people you know, of our listeners as well as um, all the other shows that you are on, I think so many people really want to hear these kinds of uh, stories, the folklore, the uh, you know, inter you know, the texts that were you know, you, know, you do cover you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the uh, tablets. I think people uh, really want to know that. There, there, there's a curiosity, some kind of connection that uh, may not have really been covered in high school, but you know they hear about it uh, later in life, and they. Uh, You know, come across your appearances, and I think you know. I think there's a real market for what what you're covering. It's a growing market because yeah. people, I think, are kind of waking up to understand or trying to wrestle with this idea something's not right here something's gone yeah. awry it's just it's things are different now don't know why it's moving in that sort of direction and i can't make sense of the world so so much of the comments that i, I receive back is two things is is one you know um will be you know the old testament for the first time makes sense to me or the larger one is, is for the first time, the world makes sense to me. And that's not, it's not saying that you're going to be in nirvana, so to speak, um, because you have a better understanding of the world. It won't make you feel like this is heaven on earth because it's not. And it's not getting the truth out there or information out there is not going to get you there that in this time that, uh, we're, we're living in heaven on earth. It's just not the case, but you'll understand why things are. And you can start to relate things to what is going on out there. And, you know, I think you referenced earlier on in the show about, you know, what's going on in, in Gaza and in Israel right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, what is, you know, continues to cause this, It's almost it's a transgenerational um, vow to you know wipe Israel from the face of the earth, and you know why is that why is that happening? I mean, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the, we we all know that the history of, of the Jewish people from the time of their diaspora after the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in seventy A.D. And they've been persecuted throughout that history. I mean, they're going through the curses of the covenant, um, which is what book three is going to be about. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and so, but it goes deeper than that because it's more than just the curses of the covenant. There's another oath that's out there. And 
in the time of the Amalekites, um, who are created in, in as, as, the, as a hybrid version versus the giant version, although the hybrids moved to live amongst the um, giant version of the, of the Malachim at Petra. In Genesis 36, you have Timna, who's going to marry Eliphaz, son of Esau, brother of Jacob, who received all of the blessings or stole all of the blessings from Esau. So the Magianic blessing, the uh, inheritance blessing, and, all, and the separate blessings to being fruitful and things like that. So, um, And so Timna is a daughter of Seir, uh, which is a duke of Edom, uh, or, which is the Hebrew word, um, where Elvin comes from, and uh, as an Elvin king, as a fairy king, and it sort of works into the bloodlines that I talk about in, in book one on. And but this is a hybrid branch. There's, these are going to be giants, humans, and a Horim, which is one of the giants. So they're going to create a hybrid human giant race, which aren't going to be as tall as the uh, original giants, like. Uh, Goliath, who would be, as a king of Gath, he would have been 11 feet, 3 inches, or uh, Og would have been somewhere between, you know, 13 to 15 feet, based mm-hmm. on the dimensions of his bed. And, bed, uh, you know, bed. and Gilgamesh, which isn't biblical, but another giant for reference, he's even taller as a dark-haired giant. He's 11 cubits tall and 4 cubits wide, king of Uruk, post-Diluvian giant from King Lugobanda, king of Uruk, and the uh, fertility goddess Nin. That's going to be 19 feet tall and seven feet wide. Like these were huge. Wow. Mm-hmm. And the Shazu, as the uh, Egyptians called these hybrids of the covenant land that lived amongst the, the giants, uh, particularly in the execration text, but other writings as well in, 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 in Egypt, called them the Shazu. They were seven to nine feet tall, so hybrid, smaller, because of the human blood that's in there. And so you have this dynasty that's being started with a very rare female Raphaim giant after the flood, Timna, with this bloodline that comes goes back to Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, and the rest of the genealogy that goes back with that. And, and if the Amalekites wipe Israel from the face of the earth, they're going to inherit by law the Asianic promise, the inheritance rights, and the blessings of the covenant. And so they swear an oath to wipe Israel from the face of the earth, and it's transgenerational. And we see that show up in the time of King Saul and King David. And you have uh, a King Agag that is the leader of the Amalekites at that time. And David pretty much finishes off the Amalekites, but a remnant survives into the time of Judah's exile into Babylon. And this is Haman the Agagite who wants to wipe Judah from the face of the earth, the southern kingdom. And that's part of that transgenerational bloodline. Uh, Agag was the king that's named Numbers 21 for the king of the Amalekites. And it's a title like Caesar or Pharaoh. So an Agagite is a Amalekite bloodline. And Haman sits at the top of the vassal kings in the court of the emperor of that time and Judah from the face of the earth 
And at that time, he takes in other na- uh, the Amalekites take in other nations to swear an oath to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. And these are the giants and the hybrids. Now, as I mentioned with the giant wars in book two, you roll that forward to the current time of King David, and he's still fighting giants and giant nations. And in Psalms 83, just after the 82 for the where it talks about the uh, the council of the gods, you have this uh, passage that talks about this oath that certain nations have taken and are still carrying out over 400 years later um, to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. And it says, uh, you know, the, the, Psalms 83.3, it says, They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come, let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel be may be no more in remembrance. And then that time, I won't read any more off of that passage, but here's some of the names of those uh, nations that are in this uh, allegiance, this conspiracy to wipe Israel from the face of the earth in the time of King David. Uh, you have Edom, which is where we talked about where the Amalekites come from, the Ishmaelites, a lot of the Arab nations will come from the uh, Ishmaelites, Moab, uh, um, and Ammon, which is basically the Jordan region. Uh, you have Jebel or Gabal. They lived amongst the uh, Amalekite giants in Petra, and also up in the area of Tyre. The Hagarines, Hagar, again, is... Um, a consort of Abraham who produced Ishmael and again gives you bloodlines into the Arab nations. And you also have the Philistines. And the Philistines lived in Gaza after they expropriated that and uh, then formed a larger alliance with some of the some of the giant nations. And the Palestinians are the descendants of that. And what's interesting is um Hamas, and and these are quite wealthy people that are doing the leadership, and and they live in Qatar. They don't live in Gaza. Um, You have, uh, at the time of the Philistines expropriating Gaza, uh, they're going to war with the Anakim and the Avim, and the Philistines are going to control five cities of the Philistine Metapolis, which was the nemesis of Israel throughout the age of the judges, by the way, and into the time of King David and Saul. And David is the one who finishes them off or takes them down to a level where they're no longer a threat. So the Philistines are going to keep Ashad and Ekron. But the Avim, one of the giants that they were pushing out, they allow them to be part of the other giant um, that comes So the Cherethim, Kaphtarim, the Pelethim, and the part of this alliance is now going to permit the Avim to control Gaza, or Aza, as it was known back then. And they're part of the Philistine Pentapolis. And the Ashad. And so this is that same oath that is history um, to wipe from the face That oath is tear. And 
you know, a Canaanite hybrid. I also had other clients that were in the working their terrorism to wipe Israel from the face of the earth out of um, Lebanon. And you just might kind of wonder, like, why are all of these different factions have this oath to wipe Israel from the face of the earth? It's almost like it's just something that is beyond a generation and almost in the DNA or forces that are continually trying to bring this about and it for me it's 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 if you want to understand what's going on in the world you're going to start to get a better idea by understanding what happened in the past and it's really important to also add in there you're going to have a better understanding of where things are going to be going and we don't have to like this war that's going on over there, but this is something that is not easily resolved when you're talking about, you know, transmillennial oaths. Yeah, it, you mentioned uh, a little bit ago about, you know, uh, it, it's a changed world. Um, you know, really, you know, I'm sure Barbara uh, could even tell you that a lot of the authors who contacted us about, uh, hey, got a new uh, book out. Uh, you know, it really. I think a lot of our shows uh, started becoming more um, cool research. And it's just interesting with everything that's gone on in the, you know, just about the last four years, um, more people are uh, writing, uh, uh, digging into the Bible for uh, sources for their next books. Um, Our audience seems to really enjoy it and it's, you know, the comments that uh, uh, we've had um, you know Barbara's had a couple really uh, uh, fascinating shows with uh, James Tabor um, that's why I keep going back to uh, you know from what our list the, the nightlight listeners are telling us is yeah, you know, they they want to know. Um, I think your discussions with us over the years have given them, you know, the listeners, I, um, um, new views of you know, a, a book that you know. That, they read at one time, but um, your interpretations of um, New Jerusalem or something, something like that, are bringing them back to rereading uh, the Old and New Testament uh, with uh, 
new new eyes and um you know going you know like I was going back you know, through your book for tonight's show I even you know left a note for myself um you know from your epilogue where you know you wrote the hidden hand of hubris haunting hum- humankind's history must be revealed along with its duplicity and its surreptitious serpentine organization i think people um are realizing such lines that you wrote in the last uh chapter of um the Genesis 6 conspiracy that's just my observation on yeah it's uh it's interesting um that you have to you kind of have to read the book and you also have to see some time and things start to yeah sort of align right and mm-hmm. what i found was quite interesting um with with my first book was that it you know i i had hoped that you know you might get a couple three year run with a book i mean most people are happy if they get one year um, this book is, you know, in its ninth year that was out there and it sells more every year. And so mm-hmm. people, people are reading it and they're obviously recommending it to, to other people. And, you know, they can see the kind of research that went into that book. And, uh, you know, there's over a hundred pages of, uh, end notes and mm-hmm. you know just the bibliography will help people you know learn more if they want to you know get some of those books and a lot of people do um, but I, I want people to know where my sources come from because that's really where you decide you know where the where the test actually comes as to is it manipulated or was it accurate and or was he manipulating what somebody said to make a point or is that what they said and it's about not manipulating it's about and and showing the transparency so that people can take that research further uh, or just for themselves whether or not they're going to do anything with it or not so I find that people will also tell me is they like to keep it, you know, as a reference books because, you know, the way the chapters are written, it's, uh, you know, every story is a mini story. So if you want to know, you know, about who the Knights Templar are, there's a chapter on there. You want to know who the Rosicrucians are, there's a chapter on there. And uh, the House of Stewart. Yeah. So it, it, it allows you to read it as you like and, and to go back and to find uh, things on it to to see what what I had to say on that particular subject when when they see something or read something out there on the internet. So yeah, it's uh it's it's rather rather satisfying and and uh as I say you never know whether or not your book is going to sell or people are going to like it or not and 
you know, I and I, as I said, I thought I would never write another sequel, but uh, the demand is, is is growing there, and it's not just me. I mean, there's other researchers that are out there doing stuff, but I think, you know, is interesting for people who listen to me on shows or are, you know, following me on social media or uh, are reading my book is, is I talk about things and and do research in areas most people haven't done. So it's mm-hmm. designed to be thought-provoking and to sort of say, have you considered this? You know, um, you know, the project I'm working on is ba- basically the same thing. Have you have you considered this? So it's, I'll keep, I'll keep you posted on that. But you know, Barbara yeah. hears enough about yeah. it. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I've heard, yeah, I, I don't need it. I, I've heard enough about the mastodons, yeah. but um, yeah. there's a there's a there's a statement that I used to say early on, and I forgot I used to say it, and I was reminded of it recently. And one of the things I used to say, and they say, well. Um, you know, because you're talking about bloodlines and they go back to giants and they go back to, to gods and stuff. And it's a interesting sort of concept. And, you know, it takes a while for you to want, you know, somebody to want to say, do I actually want to deal with that or not? I know first time I read Genesis 6, first few times I read Genesis 6 in the Bible, I'm going, giants, I don't want to, what, what the heck's that all about? I don't want anything to do with that. I get that. But if you ask somebody a question like, what makes a queen or what makes the king? What does that mean? That'd be related to the bloodlines that you focus on. Yeah. And, and if people haven't asked themselves that question, it means that you just have accepted what the hierarchy is, but you haven't dug into how did they become a king or a queen? Okay. There's a bloodline there. They do dynasties, but where does that authority come from? And why are they considered a different kind of government than other kinds of government? And But once you start to peel that back, you start to say, well, why do they keep these genealogies? Why do they intermarry? Why is most of their blood types uh, in, in a negative sort of form? What's these genes that they always like to talk about, like the LB gens or the Julia gens or the Elvin gens? And how, does those, how do those come about? And why do they populate all of the wealth in the world with their extended family? Why do they control all the education? Why do they have all of their people running all of the, the religions, Christians and non-Christians? How did a four-class system come about that they get to sit top of? And why do they have so much of the wealth? Uh, and that's just the beginning of things to consider. Uh, but once you start putting the pieces together, it starts to make sense. Um, so I think over time, a lot of that type of research has been, you know, hopefully helpful to some people. I know probably a lot of people think I'm probably right off the deep end as well, but I've sort of come from that position of saying, well, that's crazy stuff, or I don't want to deal with that to start to say, and you know what, it's okay that the world isn't what you thought it was. Um, and I may not like what it is, but boy, it certainly makes sense. And now I can start making a decision for myself as to what do I believe? 
and why am I here, and where are we going? Okay, so so uh, well, we have like 19 minutes, unfortunately, uh, left in the show, but um, since you said, you know, like, you know, why are you here? What do you uh, believe? Um, it, we could uh, wrap up with something like when we're you know, talking about these uh, the malevolent uh, bloodlines, uh, you know. You know all, all these battles, um, the the Nephilim. So, how does all that fit into the reason for this season? Um, you know the you know little little uh, in, infant, you know new, newly born uh, Jesus had ha, or has a lot to. Um, uh, you know, if we're look, looking for some hope in today's really fallen world, how does th- this Christmas season uplift us with so much for one person to overcome? I, I would say that um, I would look at it that you know you can if you can have a season of peace and goodwill, you can have a year peace and goodwill, and you can have that in a celebration form and a respectful of language, color, religions, whatever. Uh, to co to coexist, but not in a unified totalitarian or one government type of system, because you won't have that if that comes about. But you can look at this season that uh, you know, and you can go anywhere in the world now, and you have. Christmas being celebrated in in China and Japan and other places, maybe not as the most important celebration of the year, but it's growing every year. And because it hits on so many different uh, belief systems, and you don't even have to have a religious belief system, just the whole idea of celebration, respect, and uh, doing things for others and providing gifts. You don't have to attach any sort of religious connotation to that. So everybody can participate in that um, and in their own way. And that's, you know, ideally the best we could have in this world on our own. Um, it should serve as an aspiration that if there wasn't an end time, if there wasn't, and in in most cultures and religions, there's an end time, if there wasn't, if we could get that recreated around the world, I mean, you could have a whole different kind of world. 
but it probably won't happen. Um, well, and from my belief system, it wouldn't happen. But it's one of those things is that it just brings it's a it's a time when the barriers come down, and it's what we could be as 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 a human race. Um, and it's a shame that we can't move forward with that in mind and and get rid of war. Um, but when you have so much of the wealth that is in, and, I, and I'm not a socialist, but if you have so much of the wealth in so few people's hands, you have most of the power in so few of people's hands, and their interest isn't in humankind getting along. It's hard to imagine how you could get that on a permanent basis to have that sort of Christmas spirit, so to speak, in a, in a, in a uh, allegorical term, um, you know, to be around 365 days a year. Uh, it's just not possible when you have those rivalries amongst that kind of power who operate the world as puppeteers. It, 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 um, uh, this example uh, doesn't, uh, may not, I, I think it fits, uh, might be uh, off topic though, but uh, Pope John Paul II was uh, probably the um, most uh, prominent anti-communist warrior. Um, you know, uh, people could only live behind a wall for so long. It, 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 uh, they, they yearn for something more than what um, uh, what uh, Brezhnev and all, all, all them said. You know, we will give you. You know, uh, yeah, there's. I think the Pope helped to end that kind of oligarch tyranny that um, did was keeping people in an unnatural state, and you know it. It you know eventually. Eventually had to um, end. I think that's one of the uh, unnatural um, aspects of some of these ideas that the uh, uh, bad bloodlines are trying to impose on people. Yeah, and you know, I don't think that. We ought to be trying to, through violence and wars, to convert these other nations into our belief system. I mean, I would love them to not be totalitarian states, but you can't. It's it's not possible to force them into uh, ways and belief systems that you know work more successfully around the world. They have to, you know, want to be able to do that for you know, for themselves. Yeah. So, so we have to be, we have to be understanding of that. Um, and 
we also need to sort of realize that um, we have to protect ourselves and protect what we have and not let ourselves destroy ourselves from within um, our own countries. And I think we see that decay that's starting to happen and we have to get back to some common values mm-hmm. to uh, make sure that we, you know, we don't weaken ourselves um, so that we become vulnerable. And I'm not naive to the fact that um, if there weren't certain people who were raised up in certain times throughout history, evil would have taken over everything. Um, So we have to push back, but we ought not to be the aggressor. Uh, If we want the world to come to our way, and I would say this to my fellow Christians as well, is we have to role model and have people want to become Christian or have people to become more like what happens in the West. But we have to be vigilant to that. Not everybody is going to agree with us and it's fine not to agree with us, but they can't try and bring us down. We have to also protect ourselves from that. Otherwise evil would roll rule over the whole world. So there's a fine balance there. And I think in the West, we, we don't do a very good job of, of, finding that balance and we seem to have settled into perpetual war it may be proxy war but it's perpetual war nonetheless okay well i think it 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 just seems like it uh you know to follow up with what you were saying that with uh the the passage from Ephesians six about putting on you know God's armor and the belt and sword and all that and you know, also get the sword and uh, uh, Jesus's mouth that you know, that imagery from um, the Book of Revelation it, um, uh, so some, you, know, you do have to say you know, stop this isn't uh right I, I i don't like it and you know here's why uh, you know get give pushback uh, pushback doesn't mean an all all out attack it's just saying no i i i need to draw the line here yeah exactly and and uh, okay um you know, I have a, you know, a lot more questions, but it is in the last you know, eight minutes or so. It, is there anything else you want to uh, cover since this is a um, special uh, show? On Christmas you're referring to? Oh, yeah, or in, yep. uh, a, a, a any any other topic that you want to uh uh get get out there you know a certain message i'm you know I'm just just giving giving you the time or I can go back yeah, to yeah no i would, more I would questions. Say it would be related to christmas but in a larger sort of manner is is to question things more um and you know 
when we have so many people trying to manipulate us and the typical fashion that's being used of late is you have to do this or we have to do this or we'll destroy ourselves from the face of the earth, whether it's in nuclear weapons or in famine or global warming or overpopulation or mm-hmm. we don't have enough energy. It's you have, if we, we need to start asking more critical questions uh, so that uh, we hold those people making those assertions accountable um, but we don't have that today and they're able to say and do things uh, because they know people aren't going to take that stand that line in the sand and saying I might buy into what you're saying but I need to hear more and I don't want fake science I don't want political science I don't want any agendas in there I just want to know the facts and the facts has to be connected to being the truth. Um, And and so we need to really hold our our leadership accountable and we need to, we need to hold our educators accountable to not manipulating the truth, not putting in agendas and belief systems into education and to teach them again, how to critically analyze because that has disappeared. And when that starts to disappear, your free speech starts to disappear. And that's the area that we're in right now. And there's time to push this back. Um, But we have to be firm and we have to role model and we have to collectively all participate. And we're fortunate enough that we do have, whether or not it is a completely uncorrupted democratic system or not, we have the ability to vote. And we have to vote for people who are, who know the difference between right and wrong to begin with. And that if there's any form of corruption, you cannot vote for them, even if they're from your party or whatever the reason that you were supporting them before. That's a non-starter. And we have to be able to push back because we're teetering on totalitarianism and it's those who are saying for the most part that uh, the people who want free speech and transparency and fair elections are the ones who are trying to destroy democracy and it's that it's that projection of, of what the ones who are doing to bring about totalitarianism are projecting on to the people that are trying to stand up, which means you have to stand up in such numbers and take that power away and bring right and wrong and truth back in. And I know the other side likes to talk about relative truth. Truth is what is truth. What it always is what it is. Yeah. Not what you want it to be. It's what it is. And uh, don't give us fake science. Don't give us uh, fake uh, news. Don't give us any of that propaganda and misinformation. We need to we need to stand up and say we want that transparency. We want you to do right and wrong. We can disagree on certain issues and be fine with that. But there's things you can't do. You cannot persecute. You cannot censor. You if you start to go beyond those types of things, you cannot be corrupt. Um, and you have, you know, you have to do what's good for the country and the people. 
Uh, and, and that is something that we have to be better at in terms of how we exercise our votes. And they've pushed us into polarized positions and those standard established parties are like the uniparty is what a lot of people like to say. And, right. and they tell us, and we've been brainwashed that populism is dangerous. Unless of course, who was ever who's ever supporting the totalitarian globalist movement is popular. Then populism is terrific. Right. And they're the next Messiah that's coming. We have to look at those as red flags and we have to say no to that. We want certain things. And, you know, the first priority of democracy and of the government is to protect the people. We can't make a statement today. They're protecting us when they're persecuting us. They're letting crime get out of control and they let our borders become uh, overwhelmed with people that we don't even want to put through the legal immigration system. I'm not against immigration. Just do it legally and in an organized manner so that we don't lose our country. But it's going to be a long fight back because there, there's a uh, an establishment that is completely different than the establishment that my generation grew up and said there's something wrong with this establishment. This is the replacement establishment and it doesn't look like democracy to me right okay um i think uh we're going to need to stop there we're uh just under two minutes gary uh where can people uh you know, by uh, your books, uh, you know, website information, and, you know, we can wrap after you're uh, sure. done with uh, promoting those. Yeah, so the best place to get a hold of me or uh, to purchase one of my books is through my website. That's the Genesis6conspiracy.com. That's genesis 6 the number six conspiracy.com. And on that website, I have a generous excerpt of all eight chapters of book one and all 84 chapters of book two. And even if you just scan the table of contents, I think it's going to raise your eyebrows and get your interest. If you're looking to purchase a book, you can buy a signed copy off the website or pre-book uh, a printed copy uh, for the for book two. There's no pre-ordering for Kindle at this point, but there will be um soon i'm hoping um and if uh, you live in canada there's a u.s uh, there's a canadian page if you're in the u.s there's a u.s page if you're overseas there's an overseas page off the uh, website you can also link over to barnesandnoble.com uh, barnes uh, amazon.com amazon.ca and the kindle version and if you wanted to get a hold of me and ask me a question or uh, if you want uh, to get a document, I have a lot of documents. Just name the topic. So I got a document. I'll send it to you. It might take me two or three weeks to get back to you, but I will get back to you. And then you can just go over to contact the author off that website and uh, send me an email. And that's the Genesis Six Conspiracy at gmail.com, which you'll be sending it on. You won't show it there, but that is the address in case you can't find it. And you can also uh, get a hold of me on uh, Facebook, uh, either at Messenger or on my timeline. All right. Sounds great. Uh, thank you so much, Gary. Uh, have a Merry Christmas. Uh, we'll see everyone 
on Wednesday. Uh, thank you so much for listening to a fascinating show. Take care, everyone. Thank you.